welcome to the Carry On Podcast. This is your host, Lindsay Rowland. I'm really excited for today's guest. Mr. James Hutton served almost 27 years in the U.S. Army and retired as colonel. His most recent position was with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs as the Chief Communications Officer for former VA Secretary Wilkie. I'm excited to welcome him today to get his thoughts on Afghanistan. Thank you, Mr. Hutton, for being here. Hi, thank you very much. It's great to be here with you. I really appreciate your inter- this interview. Um, yeah, so we talked about this a second ago, but um, if you could just introduce yourself a little bit, but then I would love to get uh, directly, I wanna maximize our time to hear your thoughts today. Sure. Well, as you said, uh, I was in the army. I served in never in Afghanistan, as it turns out, but uh, I did three long tours in in Iraq uh, and also some shorter tours in Af- in uh, Bosnia and uh, Kosovo. And I I was stationed all over the place. Uh, four years I spent in Germany and National Training Center in California, Fort Hood, Texas, the first CAV, uh, Fort Leavenworth, Fort Leonard Wood a couple of times. Uh, so I, I had a full career and uh, grew up in the Army. My father was a retired Army officer as well. So I lived all over the place. I graduated high school at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. So that should tell you uh, my background right there. My other high schools were Clarksville, Tennessee for a little while and uh, and uh, Bremerhaven American High School in Germany. So uh, the Army is run runs deep in my blood. And my father was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, my son was an Afghanistan war veteran as a Navy corpsman, and uh, he, he was uh, none too happy to see a, a fellow Navy corpsman uh, killed in Afghanistan as a, one of the 13, the, the 12 Marines and the, and the uh, soldier. So this is, uh, we've, we feel like we've got skin in the game. I feel like I've got skin in the game for the rest of my life. Uh, the Army is part of who I am. I consider myself a soldier first, and then everything else comes after that. Um, I was fortunate enough to work at an organization called TAPS after I retired, a Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. Um, They provide services to the families of the fallen, and they're always there to support 24 hours a day. They're uh, online, easy to find, uh, taps.org. And uh, I, you know, I, I commend that organization. But shortly after that, I was there for about a year. And then I took a job as a career employee at the VA as director of media relations. And then later, when President Trump won the election, I was asked if I would take a political appointment. And, and I said, absolutely, even though, you know, as a, a career employee, I think it was like a tenured professor. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if there was anything that could have been done to, to make me have to leave. But, uh, of course, as a political appointee, you know, you serve at the pleasure of the president. And then, of course, his term ended. So um, so out I out I came um, recently. Uh, the, my my wife uh, has died. And so I chose have chosen not to go back to work yet until, uh, you know, some time passes and then. Uh, I'll, I'll be back on it. But uh, when I saw what was happening in Afghanistan, I I don't think I've ever been as heartsick by a, an action of a U.S. president in my lifetime. And I know some people will say, well, listen, you you chose the other side. You you know, this is a partisan thing. But I, I think the polls are showing that uh, 
pretty much across the board, American people are, are, are also heart sick. And, and that's the first thing. It's not really, I, you know, I question you should have, should have left or should have ever have uh, left. It was how it was all done. And, and really, I know that, that they're trying to make it, uh, the administration is trying to make it seem as if what is happening was absolutely inevitable, no matter when they did it, even though we saw in just the last week or so, or two weeks or so, the president himself say, this is going to be an orderly thing. We're going to do it safely. Uh, we're going to get everybody out. And all those things are not coming true. Uh, so, you know, Amer I think Amer fellow, my fellow Americans, our fellow Americans are, are somewhat perplexed is why are we doing it this way? You know, and, and then we keep compounding the errors even afterwards. You know, with the, uh, the the ceremony at Dover, with looking at the watch, I, it's like, are, is, is there some is there something guiding this? I, I don't, we don't understand. I don't understand. That's for sure. But it looks like to me that the, and I'm a, as a communicator, someone who worked for 26 years in a row as a as a, a commu communicator, it looks like they kind of settled in on a uh, campaign. And it's like a PR campaign. We're seeing the, the main element of it is main elements of it are uh, to blame Trump. Now that's always a that's always a catch-all for this administration, just as it was when President Obama was the president, and Joe Biden, by the way, was the vice president. Um, when something went wrong, it was very usual to blame Bush. Okay, so. That that's a given. We know that's going to be one. But he also kind of spread the blame of it, even though he doesn't think there's a blame to spread. But he's also kind of put this on the, the his prior three uh, predecessors as president. And just and, and, you know, he doesn't mention that for eight of those years, those 20 years, he was the vice president of the United States. So why this couldn't have been done in his term, it's kind of fuzzy and and you know, on purpose, I think. And again, he said this would, was inevitable, that it was going to be messy no matter when it happened. But again, he, he very clearly said it wasn't going to be that way. And then it changed. Um, and lately, he's added on to this and blame, is blaming the Afghan soldiers themselves. But you've got to put yourself in the position of an Afghan soldier. You're getting all of your logistical support, your air support, uh, your, your guidance and training from Americans on the ground, um, helping you through, manning a place like Bagram Air Base, uh, having troops on the ground if, if at all needed. And one day you wake up and all of, a, all of our American forces are gone. So you've got a few choices to make here, right? You, can, you and your fellow squad members can take your rifles and fight like crazy against the Taliban, which is all over the country, or you can run out of the country, which I'm sure some of them have done, or you can kind of blend yourself back into the overall populace and hope that they don't have your name on a list. I suspect some of them, some people have done that, or you can join them, and probably some guys did. Uh, but it should not be a surprise to any of us that they simply discontinued uh, fighting. So, and then of course, the, the latest and maybe the most egregious thing is uh, from yesterday's speech, 
the president essentially blamed the uh, the Americans and the others that we were trying to get out on uh, blamed it blamed this on them a little bit because saying that you know we gave them all kinds of notice and they they just didn't come. Yeah, I don't think any of them thought that overnight that one day they were going to wake up and everyone was going to be gone. So, you know, and then the, the speech itself, very defensive. And I can understand now after seeing the polls to why it was so defensive, because he thinks the president thinks that what he did was save us from ourselves by ending this war. Well, you know, ending the war was not the issue. A lot of people wanted to end the war. His three predecessors wanted to end the war. Uh, you know, that doesn't mean this is the way you end it. Uh, we, you know, we've got to keep that in mind. I and mean, he had this strange reference to Yemen. And, you know, what if Yemen had attacked us? Would we still have gone to Afghanistan? Well, OK, but that didn't happen. That's not where it came from. It came from Afghanistan. And that's why we were there. And that's also why it's still of strategic interest. He says we have no strategic interest at all. Well, we, we certainly did to have to go there in the first place because some guys got together and then attacked us in 911. Well, those same guys are now back in charge. The whole crew is there. You know, the uh, Al-Qaeda and something called ISIS-K. We don't even know exactly what they're all about yet. Um, so it's left us with lots of, lots of disappointment in our, our leadership. And not just in the president, you know, um, uh, Secretary Milley, uh, I'm sorry, uh, General Milley, the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, and then Secretary Austin um, have kind of been really vague and fuzzy. I realized that at one o'clock today, this on this day on uh, Wednesday that we're taping this, that they're going to uh, they're going to come out and speak. But this will only be the second time that we've heard from General Austin. I, I keep calling him General Austin. I knew him in the Army. Uh, he was a highly respected general, but he's he's disappeared on us. We, we don't see him. We've seen him one time, and he was very vague and kind of uh, un, uninformative the one time we have seen him. And General Milley, also kind of defensive himself, uh, another guy that I saw in Iraq as a brigade commander, he and, and a very effective one. But, you know, uh, here's what I want to know from both of those guys. And no media guy has asked me yet, and maybe that'll happen today, is what was your personal recommendation? What course of action did you personally recommend? I don't want to hear about consensus because that's all everybody and nobody all at the same time. I want to know what it is that you thought we should do. And if you say we should have done it exactly the way we did it, then maybe you should consider another line of work. And if you gave a very opposite kind of point of view to the president and he dismissed your advice, well, you might also consider leaving office in some kind of protest. You know, you still have, both of those guys still have a very strong uh they should have a very strong commitment to the soldiers and sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, even the civilians that worked at the embassy. They should have a commitment to them and not just to keeping the job. So I'm I'm, I'm disappointed in the way not only not not necessarily their personal decision making, but what their role was with the president and, and why I, I'm willing to hear how I'm willing to listen to. 
anyone from the administration who can explain in some kind of detail why it was a good thing to leave civilians and take out the military force. I'm willing to listen, but none of them have offered much of an explanation uh, on that matter. So, uh, you know, we definitely want to hear from him. I also want to hear from General McKenzie. General McKenzie, the CENTCOM commander, uh, uh, you know, that he's the guy who asked for forces. Uh, he's given a mission, and then he's supposed to tell the through the chairman to the secretary to the president, here's what I need to accomplish that mission. I want to know what his personal recommendation was too, and why. We haven't heard that too. Heard that at all. And then of course the uh, the a neo operation is theoretically at least run by the State Department. I want to know what Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, uh, has to say as well. Come on now, he you know anytime he's been on TV, he's been on TV a few times. He's been as uncommunicative as as I've ever seen. And now this may be by design, but I think, of course, that kind of pattern is in the hopes that this kind of just runs out of juice at a certain point. I, I really believe that some of the people in the White House and State Department especially think that once we've removed everyone, which we have now, uh, of the soldiers, that we haven't removed everyone, obviously, um, but it's going to run out of news juice and we're just not going to hear about it anymore. And we've got, you know, three and a half years to go to the next election. And so this will be all ancient history by then. I think that's what they really, really hope. And then there's another person involved in this whole thing, and that's Vice President Harris. We saw a few, few of her comments from Vietnam on this subject broad brush kind of things. We're going to help our people and that kind of thing. But she took a bold, she made a bold statement in the weeks before all of this happened, saying, I was the last person in this room, in the room with the president before he made his decision. I was it. I was there. I was part of it. And now she's nowhere to be seen. Nowhere to be seen. I Tell me what her schedule is. What's her public schedule? When When's she going to talk again? And of course, even though I said the talking points that I think you're going to see, you're going to see reiterated over and over and over again. It's going to be from state defense, the national security advisor, who another guy, we got to we got to wonder what his whole thinking was on this. We're, we're going to hear, you know, we're going to need to hear from him, too. But. All these people are going to have to tell us, you know, their role in, in, in all of this and why. I don't think it I don't think even even a, a Democrat Congress is going to let them just issue statements and, uh, uh, you know, answer answer mail from from the Congress. They're going to have to go and say what they were thinking and why. Uh, you know, the Defense Department, they have professional people at the podium. I, I have no problem with them. They're stuck in an impossible situation. Um, and, and, you know, I'm not even criticizing uh, Admiral Kirby, another guy I know and I've known for a long time. He's very capable. But, you know, you can't put word dust on the problem and hope for some miracle cure. He, he's got nothing to work with. Yeah, I don't, you know, what, what else is he going to say? And, and Jen Psaki at the White House uh, press room, what does she, you know, what does she have to, to, 
to counter what's prop this problem is uh, what the problem is. She she just she just doesn't. Um, and our polit other political leaders, uh, Senator Schumer, uh, Representative and Speaker of the House Pelosi, well, they had no problems at all about hitting mics over and over and over again every time President Trump uttered a word. Uh, they even impeached him on dubious charges. And we're barely hearing we're barely hearing about them at all, hearing from them at all. Have I lost you? OK, oh, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm waiting to ask you questions. You let me know when you want to pause because I got okay, some questions okay. for nope. you. I'm, but I, I, I want you to get through got, your talking points. <laughs> sure. I've got I've got a few more things to say keep, about. Keep going. Um, now, President Biden, of course, said we have no national interest remaining in in Afghanistan. And again, I, I have to reiterate this and use some of the same methods here. Uh, if that's true, then it wasn't true in 2001 either. Well, but it, it is true for the same reason. Al Qaeda, who is committed to attacking the United States, is now back in place with the help of the Taliban, which is now back in place. And so we left, we took we beat the Taliban to turn the country back over 20, year later, 20 years later to the Taliban. None of that makes any sense whatsoever. So um, with that, last thing, last thing before we get to the questions is this issue about transparency. The president talked a lot about transparency and how he was going to be very transparent in this, uh, in this whole process. There's been a couple of press conferences where he said that he had to call on certain people. Um, so I, you know, I don't even really count that as a press conference. And then there's been a, a couple of press conferences where he just ended it and turned and walked away. And in fact, he's the one who just a couple of days ago turned to a crowd when he was at FEMA and said, you know, I know I'm not supposed to take questions, but I mean, not supposed to, who, who says I knew the president. And then he turns and says, are there any questions? And they ask him, hey, about Afghanistan. And he goes, I'm not answering about Afghanistan. No. Why would you answer about Afghanistan? Only the biggest foreign policy issue failure that we've had in, the, in decades. And you're not going to answer any questions about that. So I don't understand it. Um, I, I'm really looking forward to um, getting all this information out. And if Congress won't do it, the American public and, and, and the media can do their job and keep pounding away saying, how, how did this happen? We don't want, A, we don't want this to happen again. And B, we know it's not over. We know it's not over as long, especially as long as there are Americans still there that are trying to get out. So with that, I'm happy to answer your questions. Thank you for that. And I wanted to make sure that you got through all your talking points because I'm yeah. kind of tired of watching the news and yeah. having professionals like you come on and then get cut off. Um, yeah. Their their points yeah. get cut off. So sure. I really I think like these important thoughts, these full thoughts are important to hear. Um, I think the first question you sort of answered, but I just want to go back a little bit. Um, you said when you talk about spreading blame. And it's obvious, like we feel that Biden should be held responsible. You also mentioned Mylene Austin. And I think what you said was, you know, right on spot. But like, do, do you feel like they should resign? You know, here's the thing. I, I feel like 
if it were me, I would resign. And I, re I personally, I really doubt that the option that we executed is the one that they recommended. It's just a feeling. I don't know. I don't have any inside information. I don't know uh, with precision and what anybody said in any meeting. I wasn't in those meetings. It's just that I, you know, I was just a lowly colonel. And I think that some major in the back of the room at some point would have risen, raised his hand and said, uh, Mr. Secretary or General or whoever's the, the head planner and said, should we leave the civilians behind and then take out the military first? I, is that really what we want to do? I, I just have to think that somebody raised their hand and said that. And um, if that's the case, I want to hear from those people. You know, uh, it, it's important to hear from those people. And, and the planners that are at the Pentagon, I, listen, I was at the Pentagon for three years. Uh, I was in Iraq for more than three years. I've seen these people work and they are diligent and they are committed and they're patriotic and they want to do the very best thing they can. And I just don't think that this is what they thought was the best way to do this. I, I just don't think that now that's now that's not saying that the president doesn't have the right. He is the he is the decision maker. And there have been plenty of times that a president has overridden uh, um, his advisors. For what? For lots of reasons, because the president's privy to a lot of information that not all of us get, um, and and that's something that, you know, that is part of our system too. But he's been saying that it was a consensus. Every general, everybody said this is what to do. He is saying that over and over and over again. So if that's not true, I want to know it, and then you know we have to ask him. Well, why are you saying that if that's not true? And if it is true, we have to really question all the people in that apparatus uh, for, for how this turned out. Listen, the American public is not going to be fooled into thinking at some point that this was really kind of a good way to do this. And that, yeah, this is the way we should have done it. But I can tell you that that's what's going to come out of this White House over and over and over again. The White House, the state, defense. Uh, the National Security Advisor, they're going to say, that even, even Central Command to a much lesser extent, but they're going to say these things over and over again because they really hope that at the end of it all, you believe, oh, this is the way it should have been done. And it's, a dis it's disappointing, but I, I've, I've seen the, the roadmap here, and I kind of know how these things work uh, for communications. All right. Well, well said. And I agree with you. I think that we do need to hear from them. I do think that it's important to hear. I mean, I served under Miley. Uh, he was my division commander at Fort Drum. So in Austin, you know, you worked with him. It is important to hear what they have to say. So I'm looking forward to, to that today. Um, my next question is, do you think yesterday, I mean, we all watched, we couldn't help but watch Biden's speech. Do you think that had he, because, you know, this is your business communication, mm -hmm. um, had he stated that there could have, there could have been a better way to leave Afghanistan or that it didn't, it didn't work out like I had thought. Do you think that would have been more heartfelt and better received by the American public? Well, you know, it, it, had he done that, it would still not have, it would still not have just completely allevi uh, alleviated the situation. It would not have made us all forget what really happened. But 
it at least would on some human level, there's some understanding that, wow, if a guy makes mistakes and he's kind of telling us he made mistakes, but no, he was, he's, he's absolutely defiant in, in stating that he, he did exactly the right thing. And now there's going to be people that agree with that. And I, you know, I understand that they're going to start coming out of the woodwork in the next few weeks and months, but that's because they don't want you know, anyone else to occupy the white house anytime soon. Um, but I just, I just, it's, it's baffling that, that this is the way it's, it's gone. Yeah. You know, I just, I, I agree with you. I don't think anything he could have said would have, um, changed, it would obviously not have changed anything. I think it could have, um, addressed a grieving nation. Uh, like yeah, they- somewhat. Yeah. That's about right. Uh, you know, address the grieving nation at, really grieved a little bit himself and, and even, show that, okay, people can make mistakes, but here's what we've got to do going forward. Well, there is no going forward with this. This, this he said, you know, this the war in Afghanistan is over. So he, for him, he wants this whole thing to be over, this whole topic to be over. And, and it's not, and it's not going to be anytime soon. So he, he's got, he's got to do something more in, in terms of uh, it, owning up to mistakes pointing out where those mistakes were made and what we could have done better. Uh, because if he doesn't, um, it's going to get harder and harder for him. If he, if he keeps on with this whole line about, you know, these other very defensive kind of talking points, uh, the American people are just not going to buy it. Now he, again, he's made a political calculation. He's thinking I've been the, the, the politician forever that if I keep saying these things, that this is going to go away. I can't say for sure that it won't, but I really don't think it will because so many people, even on his own side, and, and now we're starting to see leaks from inside the White House. If you notice, there was a political article um, talking about, you know, and they were talking to anonymous people from within the administration. Well, that's how these things begin to unravel because what he, you know, what, what he doesn't know is I guess is not taking into account is that there were other people there. They know, <laughs> you know, and, and it's just like when he doesn't think we can see the video from him two weeks ago, or really I watched a video this morning, a C-SPAN video from 2001, how he was talking about how, you know, we've, we, we can't just up and leave. It would be a mess, you know, that kind of thing. So um, he's got, a, he's got a lot to work on. I think we both can agree that we've had a severe loss of leadership here. And I understand, you know, I don't really want to address what that means to the American people. I think we all feel that in our hearts, but I do want to address what that means to our troops. Yeah. And moving forward. Yeah. You know, and it it was sad to see a Marine Lieutenant Colonel come on and make a video and, and talk about, uh, you know, holding people to account up and down the chain of command. And then he is the one who lost his job. Now, I'm not saying that the way he did that was, you know, exactly the correct way, but you, you can't, you can't doubt his sincerity or his personal courage in, in doing that. You know, I, I do understand why he would have uh, been relieved from his command. I understand it. I, I mean, I know how these, these things work. Um, but at the same time, his, the sentiment he was pushing out, and I've had lots of people, 
I've never talked to so many former colleagues um, and people that are still in the mix um, about any other issue about the military uh, in the eight years since I retired or in the 27 years I was in on active duty. I've not, I've not had so many people talk to me about how heartbroken they are and how disgusted many of them are about this whole operation. And they can't all be wrong. And that only President Biden's got the magic uh, inside information as to why this was such a success. I mean, he called this success. How, how do you do that? You know, and I see them still trying to tout the numbers of people that were evacuated. But, you know, that's that's just the guys on the ground making it happen. That was no that was no uh, strategic decision that made that. It was guys on the ground and it made that happen. And, you know, the Air Force guys and the Army guys and the Marines on the on the ground, they made that all work. I understand how that goes. The, the, these are can do kind of people, you know, but calling the 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 operation overall is success. I, wow. How do you get there? It's like, I I'm totally baffled by that. And I know that many of the officers and enlisted people that I talk to on a very regular basis now, and who are writing me on uh, Facebook and who are writing me on LinkedIn or, you know, <laughs> personal texts, they have my number. I just can't believe, uh, the outrage, the, the disgust, the, the heartbreak of all of this. You know, I, those 13 guys, or 13 people, men and women who died, I don't know if you noticed, but on that list of, of, of personnel who were killed, how many of them, I think it was five or six people were, were 20 years old. So these are people that were born the same year we started the war. You know, it, it was such a, it's such a sad sight to see, you know, it really is. Yeah, they were they were definitely a young crew. Um, but I, I will say in regards to the lieutenant colonel, um, I am excited to have him on the advocacy side, uh, on the civilian side. I don't think it will happen immediately, but I, I do think that his voice is important. And I yeah. agree it wasn't handled correctly. But um, I yeah, I'm, I'm looking I'm excited to see what he's going to do with his new platform. And, and yeah. I think it's very well, I, I agree. I think it's very heartfelt. I think it's very genuine. Yeah, absolutely. It is. Absolutely. is. And, you know, his commitment to this, to this feeling can't be questioned at all. I, I mean, he's not retiring because he's not eligible yet. He's 17 years. He's only three years away from a, a retirement. He's resigning. He's resigning. He, he will get nothing, no benefits, you know, uh, no no pension of any kind, he's resigning. So we can call him, we can label him lots of things, but not committed is not among those things. You know, he is definitely committed to the, and, and I think he, in truth, he's committed to the guys on the, and the, the men and women on the ground, the men and women who carry rifles and have to actually do this stuff. And, you know, it's one thing to sit in Washington, D.C. in a very nice, air-conditioned office. And, and, you know, in the case of the president, that's his whole life. He did that for 36 years. He did, he was an, the vice president for, for eight years. So he spent his entire, he, he, he took office when he was 30. He was actually uh, elected when he was still 29, but it was 
his birthday was in November 20th. And so he was able to be elected because he couldn't, he wouldn't take office till he was 30 in, in January of that next year. So from the time he was 30, all of the way till now, except for the four years he was out of office making money in various ways, uh, he was sitting in Washington and he claims a lot of foreign policy expertise. And I want to know where he got that. Sitting in Washington, D.C., all that time taking briefings at the Foreign Relations Committee. I, if that's how you get it. You know, he's never lived in a foreign country. He doesn't speak any foreign languages. He never had education background in foreign policy or government. So I, I just kind of wonder, what, what is the, you know, I think we're kind of reaping what we, you know, well, I think we're getting what we should have known we're getting. And that is by looking at him closely, you'll see that there's, there's no reason to believe he has some special knowledge about foreign policy. No, I that's just my agree. view. I saw him in Iraq. He, he came there as the uh, vice president elect. He was still a senator. I saw him speak. Um, and I've seen him several times since then in person. And I'm not saying he's a terrible person. He's a terrible human being, or I just don't know that he's qualified to, to run the, uh, the government of the United States. And certainly he's not a battle captain. He's not someone who, he, all the generals are telling me this, but I, you know, I, you know, I, I know better. Now we've heard that before, no doubt. And we've heard it from other presidents recently and in you know all through our history um but there's a price to pay when you're getting good advice and you just choose to totally ignore it i don't know that he did you know but i i want to know and i think you want to know and i think we have to keep asking uh our appointed leaders and if we can get general austin to talk publicly more than once in a while and i'll be watching him uh, today um that's going to be good for us. We're going to know where, how it all happened. And we need to know. Well, didn't you tell me before, though, that he's not a big fan of the press? Yeah, my, my experience with him was, you know, in Iraq, uh, General Odierno, Ray Odierno, who understood that part of his job was speaking, speaking to the public through the media. He understood that. Um, and he did that quite often. Well, the three-star commander at multinational core was general austin who i saw every day in meetings uh, every morning there was a meeting a, a big meeting and then a small meeting and a smaller meeting and i and i saw him in each of those a very bright guy very smart um uh up close and personal you know uh, a person that you you can't help but like but at the same time he's not a general anymore uh he is he is the Secretary of Defense and a huge part of a cabinet officer's job. I'll just give you an example. Secretary Wilkie, a, a great person, a great leader uh, that I worked for at VA. In his last year as the secretary, he did more than 200 separate media engagements. Now, we, we planned them so it didn't, you know, it wasn't totality of his day, but he would do a 15 minute or radio interview or maybe two or three in a day, but he did 200 separate ones. That's how that, because that's part of the job of a cabinet officer is to talk to the American public and tell them what their government is doing and why. And 
you know, in this whole thing, since this whole thing began, we've seen one, one press conference with, with him. And of course, General Milley, who's on his own talk to other places, but, and, and never has it been the secretary of defense himself alone at the podium. Now, John Kirby goes to that podium every day and he's not the secretary. He's a very good spokesperson. And the general, general Taylor, that's, I think it's Taylor that's with them. Very, they're very good at what they do. Um, I have no problems with either of them, uh, but they're only given so much material to work with. And then they're the guys who are taking all the bullets. And I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the appropriate way to do this whole thing. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking for more. I'm looking Agreed. for more. I agree yeah. and excited to watch this in like uh, a little bit here. Um, I have two more questions for you. Sure. Um, so this is a political podcast, obviously. Yeah. Um, I'm a veteran conservative. Yeah. Um, do Me too. You, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you think we should hold liberal voter, voters accountable for this? And I want to preface this with this because I do a lot of advocacy work across the aisle because veterans mm -hmm. and military can be seen as bipartisan. Yeah. You know, I'm a lobbyist. And so I have some of my contracts I have um, put on hold that were uh, bipartisan across the aisle in the last couple of days because I literally can't stomach. Yeah. Um, I can't stomach working with Democrats right now. And I know that's, yeah. you know, that's not, not, not a great thing to say, but it's true. Do you, for me personally, do you feel that we should hold liberal voters accountable for this? Okay, so the short answer is <clears throat> I would rather us try to persuade them to see the cost of decisions in, in, the, in the voting booth. I, I don't want to attack them personally because, look, whoever's the president can make any decision once they're in. And 70 million or 75 million people voting for one person, I, I can't say, well, it's now it's your fault. It, there is a certain amount of education, I think, still needs to go on about seeing actual results as being more important than how you feel about what a person is saying. I mean, we had eight years of President Obama and it was soaring speeches. Beautiful speeches, very well done. He he didn't miss a didn't miss a cue, and very little substance. And now I, I can't say we're not seeing substance. It's not good substance, but you know results should matter, and that's what I saw with President Trump. Uh, to be honest with you, there were lots and lots of results. Now I don't know how many people said to me, "Yeah, I just don't wish. I wish he would not tweet," you know. And okay, but is that the same as saying? They're saying, I don't like him personally, but do you like the results? And I, you kind of can, you know, it's a laundry list of results that are positive. Do you really want to just get rid of that because you don't like his tweets or you don't like his personality? For one thing, most, the vast majority of them, our American public is never going to meet the president of the United States in person. So it's not as if you're voting him into your bedroom, you know, or your living room to, sit there all day with you and talk. It's not that. So whether you like him personally or not is really irrelevant. It's, it's the results. And, and I think that as, as Republicans, as conservatives, we should be telling people why the other way is, is 
somewhat better than than the liberal way. And so that's the kind of the tack I would take on all of this. I um, I have lots of friends. And if you see have seen some of my Facebook posts the last day, I had a face. I've had a Facebook account, I think, for like 15 or so years, 16 years. I'm not sure. And until this happened, I was not political. I was decidedly not political on that Facebook page. And this changed it all for me. Um, but there are still friends of mine who are committed liberals. And listen, I don't block people. Uh, I don't turn my back on friends who don't believe in the way that I believe. Even some that are saying, you know, this, this is all the four president's fault, not just his. And I, I, I choose not to, uh, you know, go after them personally. Yeah, I, I still like them. There's, there's been a, uh, one of my old friends from the army who's very much a liberal, but he's written on my post on my uh, Facebook. And, you know, I, first thing I say, my first answer is I respect your view, even though I disagree with it. Um, and, and so what I would ha like to happen is, you know, in 2024, that some more people go to the booth and say, I want a guy who's going to deliver results that are good for a people and, and, and not berate them for this very bad decision about for, of, from our current president. Is that, that's well, a long answer. <laughs> no, no, that's well said. And I just, you know, I can't help but also, I've had many Democrats reach out to me about how they can help their Afghanistan friends, you know, get out of Afghanistan. Yeah. And I, I am a, I just connect people. I, I don't, I have no part in getting anyone out of Afghanistan. Um, but I can't help but think in the back of my mind, well, you're a Democrat and you voted for Biden and now you're helping yeah. your Afghanistan friends get out of Afghanistan. So it's kind of like, maybe I don't need to say anything um, because I, even, I think that's even enough. Mo even most of those people would not have done it this way. Yeah, absolutely. Even those Democrats that, you know, that you, you want to hold the blame in some way, most of them wouldn't have done it this way either. And, and that's important to know as well, because if, you know, no president we're ever going to have is going to make every decision. Even, even the purists of his, of his own party are, are going to be mad at some of the decisions the president makes, uh, no matter what. But this is beyond ideology. Really, there's not a big ideological aspect to this. Look, President Trump, uh, President Obama, President Bush, they wanted us out. That was never really the issue, and that's still not the issue. And we can't let it become the issue. Well, I ended the war. Well, that can't be the thing because everybody wanted to end that war. There's a lot of American people that didn't want us to keep staying there forever. I absolutely understand that. Everybody should know that it's the, the way this whole, th this whole thing unfolded. And that's what's important for people to know. It didn't go the way it could have gone or should have gone. And it's not like it's a total Monday morning quarterbacking kind of situation either. People were asking him about this weeks ago and months ago. And he said, this exact scenario, definitely not going to happen. He did. So again, it's not really ideological. This is not whether we should uh, add money to the budget. This is not uh, what, you know, whatever hot button issue of the day is. Uh, where there's clear ideological divides, that's not this issue. 
there's really not a huge divide among the American people but that this was really handled miserably. So. All right. Well, I think that's a really great place to stop. Okay. Uh, important. That was a great, important message. Um, probably the best one out of, you know, you said so many amazing things today. Um, but I do want to just give you, uh, do, you, do you have any last minute thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think that holding our leadership accountable has to be a relentless pursuit. They're going to do everything they can to make this go away as fast as they possibly can. And we can't allow that to happen. It, it happened for a reason. We have an incompetent leadership team, especially at the very top. And we need to keep holding them accountable. And, you know, next year, there's a whole election cycle again. And that has to be part of this because they're not going to hold him accountable the way he should be held accountable. And we need to keep pounding away at this. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate your time and your insight. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Talk to you soon.